You're listening to the best of the day. Halford and Bruff. You're listening to Halford and Bruff. A lot of crows pecking at our neck. And he got him. What a return for Jordan Romano, and what a big win for the Blue Jays. Keep flying high until those crows fall off and suffocate from the inability to breathe. It's a whole other analogy I'll get into later. Yeah, there you have it. Straight from Robert Sella. Nice job there by Laddie on the intro. It is Alfred and Bruff here. Uh, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Jason Bruff is here. There's a playoff a- race. A-Dog and Laddie are here. There's crows pecking at their neck. Come on. There's a connection there. All right. All right. Sure. Yeah, okay. What, what, whatever you say, buddy. They have haters, and they are also popular. you got to find a way to keep your work interesting. I get it. I got it. Middle of summer. Okay. Uh, Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber, with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Already a couple of uh, what we learns in the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, early, early birds getting in for 8.30 when we will read your What We Learns. But you can be an early bird, too. Hit us up, 650-650. What did you learn over the last 24 hours in sports? Uh, one thing I learned, Bruff, is that contrary to what we thought, we, in fact, have been streaming the show on camera on Sportsnet now for the last few days. Well, uh, that is surprising to me, and uh, I will stop picking my nose, yes, I, was I guess. Say. Yeah, I'll we've stop. received a lot of complaints. Please lot of, tone it down. Please. You'll stop giving me the finger every time I talk. Yeah, and, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, Drance already does that enough. Moder- moderate every time you breath. talk. Yeah. What's coming up on the show today? Uh, we got a big show. Four guests today. Lots of hockey talk. In fact, uh, here on August sixteenth, Ian Mendes of the Athletic. Uh, will join us. He covers the Senators at 6.30. Jim Toth out of Winnipeg covering the Jets for 6.80. Uh, CJOB in Winnipeg will join us at 7. Shayna Goldman at 7.30 uh, from The Athletic. Had a really interesting piece yesterday at The Athletic talking about uh, some lessons the NHL can take from other leagues about how to grow the game, make it more accessible, build fan interest. So we'll get into that at 7.30 with Shayna. Uh, and at 8 o'clock, our guy Chris Faber, of course, of Canucks Army and Canucks Conversation, the podcast, will join us. So, uh, very big show on the docket today. Uh, but let's start with what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. no. What happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? Missed that? You missed that? What Happened is brought to you by the BC Construction Safety Alliance, making safety simpler by giving construction companies the best in tools, resources, and safety training. Visit bccsa.ca. Let's start with something that just wrapped up not that long ago. England is going to the Women's World Cup Final. They beat Australia 
3-1 in the second semifinal. They will play uh, Spain on Sunday, and they are already the defending European championships and now with a chance to be the world champions, the World Cup champions uh, at the same time as well. Yeah, uh, I think everyone except people in England were cheering for Australia yes. in this one, and they did get a uh, few good moments out of Australia. Sam Kerr scored a really good goal uh, for them. Um, but England is a tournament-tested, um, grinding type of team, mm -hmm. and they got it done again. As you mentioned, they are the European champions, the defending European champions. So I expect they'll be favorites. Over Spain, yeah, I know they're going to get a player back too. The, the suspension is over, so um, you know this is this is England was one of those teams that they're like, okay, what they're one of the tournament favorites. I don't know if Spain was. Spain has been really good, but I think their growth, as we talked about yesterday. Um, <laughs> Can they grow all the way from barely qual or not even qualifying for for a bunch of tournaments to becoming world champs? I think I, I suppose they could. Spain is probably a little ahead of schedule. I think yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. They're probably mm -hmm. looked at more as a dark horse in this tournament, whereas England is an established power. Yeah, yeah. So England, if they do win, would become, I suppose, one of the few countries that has won both the men's World Cup and the women's World mm. Cup. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Germany's done it, obviously. Yep. Who else has done that it? That's is it? Would that be it? it? Because who's won the, the Women's World Cup? The U.S., Japan has, yeah. I believe, right? Like, not many countries have won the Men's World Cup. No. There's not the long list of countries. There's a bunch of countries that's won multiple. England's only won one. But mm -hmm. if they do, they would have both the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup. So that is the final on Sunday. I think it's a 3 a.m. start, our time. Perfect. Again, which is not ideal for me. I would, you know, I did watch one of the England games over my vacation because I couldn't sleep. I'm yeah. like, oh, I'll just watch this, I suppose. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm setting my alarm for three in the morning. It, it, this World Cup has been, it's been hard for North America. Yes, it has. At least in the group stage, they scheduled a lot of games with North America clearly in mind, right? Yeah. Especially Canada and U.S. games mm -hmm. started like at a reasonable time, like 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock at night or something. But in the knockout stages, it's been much, much more difficult. North America has uh, has a soccer story anyway for it all, all its own. And oh, yeah. that is uh, Lionel Messi for Inter-Miami, who... <laughs> Turns out he's pretty good. Who are now in the League's Cup final. <laughs> this was not a good MLS team. And then they got Messi and a couple of his Barcelona running yep. mates uh, to join the team. Um, it's been six games for Messi with Inter-Miami. He's got nine goals and now one finals appearance. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm getting Messi. the impression Messi's a lot better than everyone else on the pitch. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But yeah, no, I think I'm you're getting right. getting that vibe. Messi, Messi scored again, this time in Philadelphia in the semifinals of the League's Cup. Um, it was a long-distance effort that, I don't know, Maybe the goalie should have yeah, stopped. I who, mean, who knows? But I, I mean, it was Laddie. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, yeah Laddie. What did you do? Do you do soccer goal goaltending today? Should a butterfly. I yeah, told yeah, him. yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it was it was a heck of a strike, um, and I'm glad it went in because this is an incredible, incredible story. Like, I knew Messi wasn't like the the washed up player right. going to MLS. Like, I knew I knew he was still good because I 
just seen him win a World Cup, right? Mm-hmm. Very recently, and he and he was good in that World Cup. He wasn't just a, a no, you know, just an add-on figure. Um, but I have to admit, I did not expect this sort of performance from a guy who's now 36 years old. Um, I still wonder how this is all like what the Messi effect for MLS is going to be long-term, like if it's going to be a massive effect, if it's barely going to be an effect at all when he retires, like is this just going to be like a a blip that you look back in history and go like, remember when Messi played? Or if he will fundamentally start a shift of elite players considering coming over to play uh, in MLS. But, you know, regardless of what happens long-term, for now – this has to be the best thing that's ever happened for the league. There's no doubt, especially when you think of the timing and them going to the Apple TV broadcast package instead of instead of a traditional broadcast package. And I was pretty skeptical of that, to be honest. Like, I'm still a believer that as much as everyone's, you know, the cord cutting is still a thing, the ability to just flip the TV on and stumble on mm-hmm. a game that you haven't, you haven't gone out and proactively paid for that service but you're still able to watch it. Like I think that's huge for converting casual fans into hardcore fans, right? Because well, actually, my, one of the first thoughts that I had when I saw that Miami had won, I, I was like, okay, when's the league final? Yeah. Like, when is this League's Cup final? And will I even be able to watch it? Yep. Right? Like, Because I don't have the MLS package. Do I, do I need it? Now, I'm sure a few people will be like, yeah, it's on this channel or whatever. Yeah. Like, you should, yeah. you should know this. You're in sports. I'm like... Yeah, probably. You're you're right, but like the fact that I have to wonder if I if I can watch this game without paying for it. I don't think that's great for the league. No, it's not. Having said that, Messi and what he I'm sure is doing and what they say he is doing to drive those subscriptions is a big deal. Like I think they this would he would have been a massive deal for the league at any time, but specifically when you're trying to convince people to sign up for the mm-hmm. subscription service, which is a bit of a tough sell, really, unless you are a hardcore died in the wool MLS fan, uh, it's a hard sell. Messi makes it so much easier, I think. So I think just from that perspective, like kind of establishing the legitimacy of what they've chosen to do there, I think it's a really big deal. Um, so <laughs> this is a text that I'm going to read into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Cause I, kind of have been thinking about this mm-hmm. here's a text unsigned this is the equivalent of dropping over your sid in honestly the british elite league or even the echl the mls is a terrible league on the world scale worse than europe and even some south american leagues are better is there anything about this performance for messi that makes mls look that's like embarrassing yeah yeah <laughs> No, I know exactly like a thir- what you like mean. Like a 36-year-old at the end of his career comes over and still scores like, what is it? How many goals? What was it like nine goals in six yeah, games Yeah, nine goals in six he's like, It's he's like, like, yeah, this is easy. It's kind of from MLS perspective. Well, we wanted you to do well, but <laughs> yeah. maybe just tone it down just yeah. a little bit. Stop making it look really easy. I mean, I think there's an element he's of that. He's only allowed to play one minute a night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can kind of, if you were to 
try to defend MLS for whatever reason, you can kind of be like, oh, what are you going to do? He's Leo Messi. He's the GOAT. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. he's really good. He's going to get on runs like this. I, oh, I think one of the biggest things is where MLS teams have traditionally spent most of their money or all of their money and their high-profile acquisitions, it's been on attacking players. Yeah. And you look at the salaries they pay and the fees they pay for defenders, it's not much. And I think that's what we're seeing here is like, you can d- have whatever debate you want about the level of MLS as a whole. The weakest spot in MLS are the defenders. And so Messi is just feasting against not just the league as a whole, but specifically the weak part of the league right now. Uh, we had a hockey trade. Jeff Petrie on the move again. Uh, he was traded to Montreal from Pittsburgh as part of the Eric Carlson trade. Now he's been traded to Detroit. Uh, I don't think – you know, there was any chance of him playing no. in Montreal. Certainly, according to what uh, Kent Hughes had to say, the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. Um, I guess if there's a Canucks angle to this trade, it's that Petrie will be tasked with replacing a certain Philip Hironic Yep, on the right side of Detroit's defense. But I guess there was the 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 young defenseman that went back to Montreal, Lindstrom. Lindstrom. Yeah, he's a right shot defenseman. He is, too, yes. right? He's so a 24-year-old right shot defenseman. He's got to re- he's got to replace both of those guys. So that's pretty hard for Jeff Petrie. He's a veteran guy. <laughs> um, meanwhile, you know the Habs add another young defenseman to the pile. Um, I'm going to ask you a question here. How is Montreal's rebuild going? It seems like it's going pretty well in that they are they're going through the steps of what you would expect a rebuilding team to do, right? Like they're, you know, even this one, they're basically acting as a uh, uh, like a parking spot for part of Jeff Petrie's cap mm-hmm. to pick up assets in the deal, right? Like they knew they weren't keeping him and that's one of the things you want rebuilding teams to do. You also need really really good elite players though. And like I like Nick Suzuki, I like Cole Caulfield. If those are your two best forwards yeah. in three or four years, I don't know what your ceiling is, right? Yeah. And, you know, Slavkovsky could play into that, but I don't – he doesn't necessarily have the ceiling as a of a typical number one pick either. So th- it's a great illustration, I think, of you can do all the right things, but if you don't get a little bit of luck, whether it's in the lottery or having a player fall to you somewhere else in the draft or having a second-round pick really pop or something like that, you can still kind of be stuck in this position. Now – I guess what what Kent Hughes would probably say is, well, we're collecting these assets that might not be stars on their own, but maybe at a point down the road we can try to trade them for a star. We can cash them in mm-hmm. for something better. And I get that, but you're still in this position where you're kind of waiting to see, okay, who are the best players on the next really good Habs team going to be? Right. And this brings me to another question. Who has been Montreal's best skater of the cap era, not player, mm. because I think a lot of people would say Carey Price was the best player of the cap era. Because Montreal, we all know the, the issues that they've had down the middle, like they haven't had that elite center. Who are their best skaters yeah. overall? I mean, Subban won a Norris trophy with them, but yep. he was traded pretty soon after that. Shea Weber came in and played well for them. Um, you know, Pacioretty was a, was a good player for them. And, you know, the beginning of the cap era, Kovalev was, was there, and he was ultra-talented. But I think what led to a lot of the frustration when they didn't take Mitchkov is that Montreal has been 
dying for an yeah. elite. Like we're talking, you know, like a top five skater in the league. Um, you know, all these guys, like everyone's got a different idea of what elite means or what a great player is. Let's, let's define it as like a top five player. Who was the last top five player who was a skater that played oh, for the Montreal Canadiens, right? Like it might be, honestly, honestly, it might be Guy Lafleur. Yes, the name came to mind it, too. It, like, yeah, even the teams that won the That's cup. Actually, kind of hilarious when you say that. Yeah, <laughs> it, well, it, yeah, it's it's true. Like, like I, you know, back in the day, I was like, Matt Snazlin is pretty good. Yeah. But there were five players that were oh, in yeah. the league that were better than Matt Snazlin. Even the teams that won the cup in '86 and '93 had their best player in goal. Right? It was Patrick Roy. He was, you know, he was he was the Habs. Yeah, they had a bunch of other good players. Of course they did. They won the Stanley Cup. But this is it brings it brings you always back to Mitchkoff and the decision that they made to not draft him. And are they going to be able to find that mm-hmm. superstar type player? Like in Vancouver, you can at least say, like, yeah, PD has the potential to be that, or Quinn Hughes has the potential to be that. I think if you look at the Montreal Canadiens right now, you're like, oh, I, I don't know if anyone has the potential to be that. Maybe Nick Suzuki could win a Selkie one day. I I don't know, right? Yeah. Like I I I I have no idea. But I do look at what they've drafted, and and you're right. Like Kent Hughes has done all the right things. Mm-hmm. Like from a process perspective, no, there's no move that you look doing... at and think like, what was he thinking there? You well, know? you do you do think it with the draft. That's fair, right? That's like fair. you're like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. are you going to regret yeah. passing on Mitchkov? Now it might well be that Kent Hughes made a very good decision. Not to draft Mitchkov, especially if he stays in Russia, you know, past this current contract that he's got. And I know that was the concern. That was the risk. You know, Russia is a complete wild card right now. And I understand why he went with Reinbacher, right? I do understand that. But considering the fact that this team has so desperately needed, like, the guy mm-hmm. either on the back end or up front, I would say especially up front because they've had some good defensemen. And somebody texted into your question about uh, who's been their best skater in the cap era. Saku Koivu was pretty darn good in his prime. That was the name that popped into my head as well. But he actually only played four seasons in the cap era uh, with the Habs. And they were good seasons, but then he finished his career uh, with a run in Anaheim. Thomas Placanic is the next on their all-time <laughs> scoring list. Yeah, yeah. If you're going for recent players after Koivu. Yeah, so but I mean, because he, he played almost 1,000 games. For yeah, them, he played right? there a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even Zaku Koivu in his prime was a really good player, but mm-hmm. he wasn't a superstar. You know, like his career high in points was 75. After that, it's Pacioretty. There's a bit of Minnesota there, right? Like yeah. Minnesota has the same struggles, uh, um, or they did, right? They've got a pretty good player now, but I think – yeah, I think I think as this Kent Hughes era goes on in Montreal, and let's be honest, like there's a chance that they could get Celebrini next year. Like they're, yep. they're not a very good team on nope. paper, right? They're probably going to be pretty bad again this season. So maybe that all becomes moot next season. But like they need they need another difference maker, and I I think especially down the middle. Like, can you imagine if they had like Suzuki plus? Yeah. Another a, great center. A real star center. A real Absolutely. star center. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly what they need. I, and I would flip it around as well. You know, your question about how the Habs rebuild is going, and I don't know if it's fair to call it a rebuild at this point, but how is whatever process they're in going in Detroit, right? Because as you mentioned, you know, trade, this is trading away a, 
a young, not necessarily a high upside guy, but still a relatively young right shot defenseman mm-hmm. for a veteran with only a couple years left in Jeff Petrie. And I think when Steve Eiserman got there, there was this, you know, it was the Eiser plan, right? And it was going to be this really methodical, expertly executed rebuild. And it, it's been slow. It's been yeah. methodical. But now you look at it and there's been a lot of money spent in free agency on non-star players, kind of middle of the roster players. And now there's trades like this, right, where it's a younger player for a veteran player. And again, like Jeff Petrie's going to be better. He's going to help them this year. But it's just kind of I don't think it's what people would have expected from Steve Eiserman at this yeah. point with where the Red Wings are. And I think you could make a, a very similar case. Now, they have Mo Sider, and depending on how you feel about him, you could say, okay, he's a bona fide number one defenseman. He is that elite talent. But I would look at the forward group and really the rest of the roster there, and it's kind totally. of a similar thing to, to Montreal. Like, mm-hmm. who's going to be the star player? Who's going to be your best forward, your best skater when you're actually good again? And it shows how tough it is sometimes to move on from great teams. Like, they're still in the yeah. shadow of those formerly Absolutely. great players. And, um, you know, Halford and I used to joke about this, and we still kind of do. Red Wings fans were so used to winning that they just expected everything to go right, even though that they knew that Lidstrom was going to retire mm-hmm. and Datsuk was going to retire and Zetterberg was going to retire. They're like, well, Gustav Nyquist yeah, and, and Thomas, Thomas Tatar, Tatar will, like those will take over. And it reminded me of... Uh, Reminded me of Chicago. They had a, a really good run of success. And they're like, well, Brandon Peary can be like the new center. You know, <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, it doesn't always work like that, right? Like, and, and I think, you know, there is, a, there is a huge difference in terms of winning Stanley Cups between great players and very good players. Uh-huh. Well, right? and especially- Massive difference. And you have to honestly ask yourself the question um, – is this guy Hall of Fame worthy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there just aren't there aren't many there aren't many teams that win the Stanley Cup without multiple Hall of Famers. Now you can go through the exercise and go, what about these guys? Okay, fine, right? Like you can find the exception to the rule, like they didn't have multiple Hall of Famers, and you're like, okay, great, congratulations, <laughs> right? Like most teams that win the Stanley Cup, you're like that guy is for sure in the Hall of Fame, probably that guy, and maybe yeah. that guy too. And I think the th- the funny thing with Detroit when they were doing their transition from the Lidstrom and uh, Datsuk and Zetterberg era was the thing with all those guys, they were all drafted late, right? Like Lidstrom was the fifth round yeah. and the Datsuk and Zetterberg were like sixth and seventh round. So for the Detroit fans, there was this real idea of like, it doesn't even matter that we haven't had high picks. Like, we'll just draft. And it's like, we get secret, secret players yeah, from Sweden yeah. all the time. Lidstrom is not just a <laughs> Hall of Famer. He's like one of the two or three best defensemen of all time. And it's just like, oh, we'll just draft another one of those in the fifth round. Like, no problem. I actually, I think it's a really interesting comp to Bergeron, right? Where it's like, you're not just losing a first line center. Yeah. You're losing a Hall of Fame player, one of the best two-way players, defensive forwards of all time. You know what I mean? And there's this idea, like, we'll just go trade for Mark Shifley. He's a first-line center. Yeah. It's like, the gap between Shifley and Bergeron is enormous. Yeah, And I think is. that Detroit fans didn't really realize that when they were going from Lidstrom to whoever was next. And mm-hmm. I-, I think that's coming for Boston, too. That's all um, here. So we're going to have a Canucks debate. Uh, I call it a forced summer debate on the Vancouver Canucks uh, later on in the show. Um, and it is one that we've had before, but it is one that I want to have again because so much is being put on Rick Tockett in 
the head coach and forming an identity for this team. And beyond Rick Tockett, this is going to be up to this new, younger, evolving leadership group that is going to include Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. What is the Canucks' identity? And if they don't have an identity right now, what could it be? Like, What could the Canucks be known for if they get their game on track and become a playoff team? Like, what... You know, if we look at Carolina and go, there's a team that plays its system. Mm. Or we look at, uh, I don't know, Vegas, and we're like, that's a big team, right? Like, big, mm-hmm. powerful team. Yeah, there's other things to those teams. Like, you wouldn't just say about Vegas, oh, they're big. You know, like, they're big. But, but you know, that's one of the things that you do notice when you watch that team. Uh, when the St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup, they were like, uh, they're a big, tough team. Right, heavy, heavy. Yeah, that, that was the word that got thrown around. Uh, actually, with a lot of teams that have won the Stanley Cup recently, heavy team. What could the Canucks' identity be? Text in to the Dumber Lumber text line at six fifty six fifty. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the best of the day. Halford and Bruff. So when we talk about a team identity, we all know the type of examples. Like you can be the high-flying team, the the talented team, run-and-gun team even. Uh, You could be a hard-working team. Like (laughs) this is taking us back a long, long – like the 82 Canucks that went to the Mm. Stanley Cup final. Like that was like – they were a hard-working team. You can be mean and nasty and big and tough – uh, you could be stingy, like you do do not give up goals. Like yep. offensively, that is what you do. Or you think about a team like the Carolina Hurricanes, I would say like highly detailed. Yes. Like everything is planned out. You play your system and your system is what your team is. Um, I always have, uh, almost always have a 2011 reference and uh, – here is uh, Kevin Bieksa on the 2011 team when he was asked about the identity of the Canucks. And he said, we really felt like we were the best conditioned team in the world. We took a lot of pride in that. You are what you value. We valued being in top shape. We argued over who has the better bike times, who'd burn the most calories. We were all in probably the best shape of our lives. Our bag skates at the end of practice weren't let's get through it. It was competitive. I'm going to beat Henrik. Henrik wants to beat Kess. Kess wants to beat Burr. And I feel that translated into our games. We came at teams in waves. We were fast and physical. Um, You know, guys would come in, finish their hits, and just swarm you. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the identity of the Canucks. And and there's a lot of buzzwords that you could take out of there. Yeah, they were conditioned. So, you know, that's something that Rick Tockett wants this team to be. Yep. Come into camp in shape. But who's going to lead that? Like, the Sedins always led that. And there were other comments from – it was like an oral history of the the team that I was reading. And it was kind of like, when your best players are also your best conditioned players and you come in and you're out of shape, you look like an idiot. 
right? So that's up to the likes of JT Miller and Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and the leaders to be the best conditioned athletes to show that if you walk into the Canucks room and, you know, like you're not in shape, then you're not just like, oh, yeah, he's not in shape. You're like letting the team down, which is why, I mean, it also, you come to the question of like, why does it even matter that a team needs an identity? Can't you just like, can't your identity just be being good? Yeah, we're good at hockey. That's, that's an identity. And sometimes we do take this identity stuff a little bit too far, but I think it can help. Like when you have an identity, it can help with things like setting standards Mm -hmm. and maintaining accountability. Aren't those a couple of words we've heard? Standards and accountability? Because you can say, like, hey, listen, like, I know you might have played for Arizona or you might have played for this team, but, like, you're playing for the Canucks now. And we have an identity, for example, that we are the best conditioned team in the world. So and a leadership group can hold new players or young players to that standard, to that identity, and it becomes something that just – if you're in Vancouver, you're in shape. Well, and the other part of that BX, a quote that stands out is you are what you value, right? And it's not that teams that, for example, the 2011 team only valued being really well conditioned, but you have to prioritize. You can't focus equally on all aspects of being good at hockey, right? You're going to have to prioritize at an individual level and at a team level what you focus on. And BX's point about what you, you are what you value, that's going to help you prioritize what do we want to develop, right? What do we want to focus on? And if everybody's focusing on the same thing or more or less on the same thing, I think that has benefits. And to extend it, you know, I think Carolina is the clear-cut example, even though they haven't won a cup, of a team that has such a strong identity. And for them, it it comes back to the systems and what Rod Brindamore has instilled in them. But they are obviously focused on different working on different things and perfecting different elements of the game than most teams and Mm -hmm. it's paid huge dividends for them and the question becomes well what should that be for this Canucks team and it is funny because you know we talk so much about how they're not a particularly big team and you always think of okay well if you're not big what's the flip side gonna be it's you're fast you're a high-flying fast team it's like they're not really fast (laughs) now which is kind of an issue but I do think if you naturally your identity is going to flow from your best players, yeah. right? Like it's hard to have an identity that is. Can your identity be your best players? I mean, that's Edmonton's identity, right? But is it was that Pittsburgh's identity, like Sid and Gino? Kind of wasn't Sid just the identity yeah. almost? Yeah, and I mean, I think it, I, I think if you're at that Crosby McDavid level, yeah, it's yeah. a lot easier to pull that off, right? Like, could you say it's Petey and Hughes, right? Like you've got this one C and number one defenseman, and I I don't know. Right? Like, I, I don't know if you can do that. To me, there's something like, mm, I think you need something more. Well, and I was trying to think of, okay, let's say not just making it them the identity, but building an identity around their strengths. And what I came up with, because, you know, Patterson is, he's not a, his calling card is not speed, right? He's a good skater, but he's not like a, a, oh, a yeah. blazing guy, a blazing fast guy out there on the ice. But I think what they both what's kind of the commonality in their game is like puck possession, right? Like they are really good on the puck. They're really Mm -hmm. good at getting the puck. They don't give it away cheaply. They make really smart, intelligent plays with it. They hold on to it really well until there's an intelligent play to be made. Now, obviously not everybody on the team is going to be able to have that level of skill. But for me, building an identity around 
We're going to have the puck. We value having the puck. We're not going to give it away cheaply. When we lose it, we're going to bust our ass really quickly to get it back, and we're going to make smart plays with it, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a pithy one-word thing. Maybe you say puck possession or something like that, but if you're trying to build an identity that flows from your best players, I think that's one you can kind of use as a rallying cry. The one thing that stood out to me when – when I was reading the BXA quote was I was remembering how competitive that Canucks team was not just against other teams, but against themselves. Mm. And that was something that I don't know how that develops. Maybe that's just certain types of personalities. Like I'm not saying this current Canucks team isn't competitive. They're professional athletes, they're competitive people, but like there was a competitiveness within the room that helped them push harder at practice. Because sometimes practices, you're like, oh, my God, we got we to gotta practice. Like, this is a grind, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And maybe, we'll, like he said, like, it wasn't a matter of, like, let's just get through this. Let's compete. Let's push against each other so we have bragging rights within the room. Um, and maybe that happens within, within the Canucks room. We're not in the room. But it, it doesn't seem to let – those stories certainly don't get out. No, right? like like it's so competitive in there, right? Now like, I do wonder if part of that is you kind of sound like you almost can't be telling those stories when the team is losing. Because you know what I mean. You kind of look ridiculous, like oh, you guys are really competitive in yeah. practice, huh? Yeah, and then you lost five nothing last night. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> no, I know it is it is harder, and and you just don't get those types of pieces. It's more like uh, the the uh, the reporting is more like what's wrong and how can exactly. we fix this, yeah. right? As opposed to like what's the secret to their success, exactly. and yeah. then you go into those types of of pieces, but. Um, I I just think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out because um, there are some very key figures for this season, and I think it starts with Rick Tockett, um, but it also goes to um, Petey and Hughes and whether or not they're going to be the types of leaders that the Sedins were, yeah. the types of leaders that Sid was in Pittsburgh. Like That's the bar. For them, they have to reach if the Canucks are going to become Stanley Cup contenders. It also extends to how are the new guys going to perform? How are they going to fit in? Can they bring something in terms of culture? Who knows, right? Like Ian Cole's been on some good teams, but how much of a role is he going to play really within the team that he can come in there and yeah. instill some of that? What about Philip Peronic? Like the, the, the season, as most seasons are, uh, there are some fascinating storylines, and I, I just hope this season that the storylines, you know, don't blow up on our faces like they have. Like, I need, I really need this team to come through. Like, <laughs> I, I, I just, I know this is kind of an just apropos of nothing. Level. Like, we were just talking about the Canucks identity, and then I'm just like, I just, I, I need them to find an identity. Like, you know, Ian was talking about how the Sens need to have a good start. Like, I, I, I just can't do another season like the last two. I no. was saying that last season too. Yeah. Right. Like I was and then like, it happened. I can't do another one. And then it happened. Then it happened right away. It yeah. right away too. Chris Faber. Faber, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, but I'm, uh, I normally don't call in, right? Like I, I normally do the connection with you guys over the computer. So I'm, I'm struggling to like, I, I'm just realizing now I never make a phone call where I'm like holding my phone to my ear. Right. which I'm doing right now to try and give you guys like the best audio. And this is so weird to me because I'm always like headphones or speakerphone, but <laughs> is your, uh, ar- is is your like arm phone. getting tired? 
Yeah, it's weird. I'm switching hands like it's not good. I I went to a colony bar the other night and I was I played that quarterback machine that they got in there where you like throw the little yep. footballs through the holes. I did about 14 rounds on that, so I can my left arm's only like 30 seconds max holding the phone up. So it's like it is sore. So yeah, I'm struggling a little bit here. Well, you're, you're tough, tough through it, buddy. We need you. You got to push, push yeah. through it here. All right. He's got um, the dog in him. Yeah, yeah. You got it. This is your chance to show that you've got that dog in you when it <laughs> when it comes to holding a phone next to yeah. your ear Thank for you. an extended period of time. Uh, that can be your identity. We were talking earlier in the show about the Canucks' identity if they have one, and if they don't have one. What could their identity plausibly be as they try to build towards being a perennial playoff team? What do you think, given the personnel they have in place, the Canucks should be trying to make their identity favor? Yeah, the the personnel thing is interesting, right? I mean, a lot of the time an identity of a team, I think, comes from the head coach. I think the, the Carolina Hurricanes would be a great example of that with Rob Rendemore. But with Rick Tockett, the identity would be, okay, we're going to be very tough to play against. And I think that's something the Canucks have talked about for the last 12 years, it feels like. But you you have to kind of look at the roster and, and think, okay, well, they are going to be tough to beat at times, but I don't know if they're going to be tough to play against with the roster they have. Lacking a little bit of those guys that kind of intimidate you physically. Uh, and, and if they, I mean, the guys that they have in that role to kind of intimidate you, I'm not sure if they can consistently do it in the NHL just yet. And I'm you know, thinking of guys like Vasily Podkoles, and I'm thinking of guys like Dakota Joshua. I just don't know if there's enough consistency there for them to be that real tough team to play against. And I think that's the style that Rick Talkett's going to want the most. So a lot of the time, I think all that stuff comes from your head coach. It's just going to be how can he execute it with his roster. And I don't know if the roster has enough potential to really be that hard to play against moving forward here. But I do think if everything clicks for them, they're more of a, a skilled team that – can kind of outscore you and win the special teams battle. But that's also been a huge problem for them over the past couple of years, specifically with the penalty kill. So there's there's a lot of things that need to click for them to find an identity. But for now, we're, we're kind of just sitting in limbo where we don't know what the Canucks identity really is. Yeah, it's funny. When, when I was coming up with ideas for what plausibly could be the Canucks identity, I just went straight to the power play. But is that like, <laughs> is that an identity? Like, we'll beat you on the power play. Right, like I, I don't know. Is that enough? Would that make them like a not a high flying team, but like could they be a high octane team? That that sounds cool. Imagine your our identity is high octane. Yeah, that sounds like something they'd put on the uh, when they just released the NHL cover for NHL twenty four. Like high octane sounds like what they're gonna yeah. like, call that game for this year. And and yeah, actually, you know, like when you said that, it does kind of sound like that could be the identity of the Vancouver Canucks and high octane, high drama, like it, it could be that again next season, but they, they at least have the pieces to, to be exciting. It's just going to be, it, it's hard to be exciting in the NHL when you're not winning games, mm. right? And when you're actually consistently winning, yeah, then they're high octane. If not, they're just high drama. Then like, that's what they've been <laughs> over the past few years. So um, at least they have the potential to get there. Like you do have, you know, Pedersen and when Demko's on his game, you have a team that can be really exciting, uh, really kind of drive through the offense there. And specifically when you even kind of start to include the defenseman, you're looking at Philip Peronic, who has some potential to be really offensive. And Quinn Hughes, obviously, like his his best thing that he brings to a hockey game is how offensive he is and how much he can create uh, from the neutral zone down. So 
yeah, I think high octane would probably be the best bet that I would go with on this team actually finding an identity. That that kind of fits to me. Now explain what octane means. I think it's part of uh, an engine. I think it's like uh, the difference between a six cylinder and uh, eight cylinder in a V eight. So yeah, that's. I think that's. I don't think that's it at all. I'm not sure about that last part. I think it has to do with gasoline. (laughs) Isn't it an an energy drink? Pretty sure it's an energy drink. Actually, you know, I'm drinking a NOS right now. I guarantee it says high (laughs) octane. Hey, um, with the addition of uh, Puce Suter, I thought it was Pius, but then Dodd told me it was Puce, and it turns out it is. Pew Suter, um, where does that leave guys like Nils Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin? Uh, in an interesting spot for a battle, that's for sure. I mean, there's it's going to be – I'm curious to see what happens with uh, Pew Suter's line, and are they going to give him some wingers that have a little bit more uh, defensive chops, or are they going to kind of say, okay, well, let's see what we can do with our third line and create some offense because of the personnel that we have. And, like, Vasily Podkolzin sounds like he might be a guy who could fit there, but – I'm going to be really curious to see which of Huglander and Pod Colson gets a run into the top six because I, I do think there's a spot there for them. And um, it'll be interesting if there's another winger kind of moved out here. Like, I don't know how the Canucks are really feeling going into the season. But the other day when we were doing our show, Harmon brought up a really good point and was like, hey, we can we can make line combinations. We can talk about everything. But let's, let, you know, also remember that a lot of things are going to change. Somebody's going to get mm. hurt by the time we get to the actual game one opening night of the regular season. So the way that we're kind of looking at this winger depth and how many wingers they have battling for spots, you almost have to like take one or two out of it by the time we actually get to opening night. And um, I, I think there's there's an interesting opportunity for both those young players, and they're in a little bit of a different spot with Huglander signing his deal uh, in the offseason here for a two-year extension, and Vasily Podkolzin's heading into the final year of his ELC. He'll be looking for a nice little raise as well. So I, I have to bet on Podkolzin being a guy who can kind of get that top six opportunity and run with it. I think in a contract year, players just play really good. Like, that's something that happens every single year uh, in the NHL. So uh, it'll be – I'm not sure how much they come into playing on Studer's line. I, I think – I don't think Huglander is going to be there because I, I kind of have uh, Connor Garland penciled in on that line. And I just don't think you're going to be able to run with two small wingers there with Pew Suter, who's I think five foot ten, five foot eleven. He's not very big either. So yeah, I, I'm not really sure how they come into the equation with Pew Suter because I think it's going to be difficult for them. But also I'm not sure which one of them makes more sense on a fourth line either. So it, the third line just doesn't really feel like a great fit for either player. I guess you could give it to Pod Colson, but it's almost more of like, uh, can we sneak one of these two young wingers into the top six and then play the other one on the fourth line? That's kind of the way that I see uh, the opening night roster shaking down for those two anyway. So I was reading your latest for Canucks Army, and it was 11 different forward line combinations for the Vancouver Canucks, and you even did three for the Abbotsford Canucks, and I la- I laughed at it because um, I know that we spend every offseason like two or three months putting lines together for the Vancouver Canucks, and then injuries happen or some guy underperforms, and then all of a sudden it's like, here's a line. Sheldon drives between uh, Connor Garland and Phil Giuseppe. Did anyone have that at the beginning of the offseason? It's kind of one of those things that we do, but it's like it's like the, the line combinations last like – one period and and I think one thing that you maybe do have to uh, appreciate about this Canucks team is they seem to have some versatility 
like getting a guy like Pew Suter who can play the wing as well, that helps, especially if you do want to have a guy like Nils Amon on the team because you want to keep him, keep encouraging him and keep, keep growing him in his NHL role without seeming like he's taking a step back if he gets sent back to Abbotsford. Yeah, and you know what? Like, that can all change, too. Like, the versatility is great, but if you're a very good team and you're, ev- like, and, and you're able to kind of avoid injuries throughout the season, you can, you can keep your four lines together for a long time. Good teams do this in the NHL all the time. When they're winning games, they don't have to change the lineup. And I think that's been the problem for Canucks fans is we follow this team that has not won a lot of games. They've had to change the lineup a lot. So, yeah, the versatility is good at the start and the, the position that the Canucks are in right now where they don't really have established lines. Versatility is very important, actually, for what they're about to walk into with training camp, preseason, and all that. But I, I would like to see the versatility be something that doesn't get praised in the Canucks roster very much once we start actually heading into the season. I'd like to see it be, okay, these guys are actually playing on the good third line together. You know, Pew Suter found success with Connor Garland and, let's say, Anthony Bavillier. They're a line that's going to stick together for more than a period, yeah. more than a week, more than even hopefully a couple months. Like I'd like to see a third line be the same for like three months of the season. That's kind of what good teams do in the NHL. And I think that's something that we just really haven't seen from the Vancouver Canucks. So, you know, versatility can be one way to look at it, but I'd like to see some consistency from, from some of these bottom six lines where it feels like, like I can't remember the last time I could tell you like this was the Canucks third line for most of the season. Like I have no idea when I could tell you, I remember that last because it just hasn't happened. And it's, probably because the Canucks haven't been a great team over the past few years. Yeah, they've just been constantly searching for depth, constantly. Things that work, like you say, that they can just keep putting together. Um, are you at all concerned? Because I know your, 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 your dog ratings often uh, take into account phys- physicality and grit. When you look at the Canucks forwards, are you worried that they might be a little – two on the soft side i'm not necessarily on gonna say on the soft side i think that even the skilled players some of them are a lot tougher than they than they probably are assumed by a lot of teams and like from fans who just don't watch them every night like i I still think that you know and the average nhl fan probably looks at elias patterson and still thinks like he's he's not a tough guy but, like, if you actually watch him play on a nightly basis, you're like, no, like, he's tough. And it's not necessarily from throwing huge hits, even though he's kind of added that a little bit over the past year here, which was nice to see a few times. But, yeah, I don't think that there's, like, a real tough part of the lineup or the fourth line's going to be three guys that are extremely tough to play against. But to me, like, I do think, and it's something to kind of circle back, like, the first question you asked, but maybe this type of thing does come from the coach. Maybe this is something that's established for the organization in training camp and, and these are the type of things that you can use training camp to do is like okay well let's let's fit what our coach wants to see from us and let's be tough to play against let's have lines that teams hate to face every single night and man like i tell you like rick talking is the right guy to learn this from i feel like so uh I, do i think that they're a little bit soft in parts of their lineup for sure do i think that they're a little bit small in parts of their lineup for sure but depending on how they can actually execute what their coaching staff is asking from them like the, I, I'm not too too worried about it. To be honest, I just have a feeling that if you're going to be a soft NHLer, like Adam Foote's not going to like you as a defenseman. Rick Tockett's <laughs> not going to like you in your forward group. You're not going to be getting ice time playing soft for Rick Tockett. So, um, 
I think that the coaching staff has some pressure on it to kind of establish that and change the culture a little bit in Vancouver that way. You know, you talk about the versatility at forward, Faber, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword, as you're mentioning, and it's kind of the case on, on the blue line as well, right? Both Ian Cole and Carson Soucy, left-shot defensemen, but have the ability to play on the right side, and we're in this spot on the blue line, too, where, you know, I have no idea who's going to be Quinn Hughes's partner to start the season, who's going to be Philip Ronick's partner to start the season, and I think, you know, even more than finding a stable third pairing or sorry third line of forwards finding a really reliable partner for Hughes and for Hronick as well I think that might be even more important for the coaching staff to figure out early in the season yeah like I I don't know who's going to play with Quinn Hughes it could be like it could be Ian Cole it could be Noah Juleson I don't think it's going to be Philip Hronick I don't think it's going to be Tyler Myers I I kind of wish they had the the guy that kind of just made sense to play with Quinn Hughes. I really have been saying that for years with him. It's it's time for the Canucks to get uh, a player that actually makes Quinn Hughes better as his partner. And I think they drafted that guy in Tom Willander if he absolutely hits. But like, yeah, it's going to be difficult because I think you can you can shake down the defense pairings and say, okay, what does it look like with Juleson up there? What does it look like with Ian Cole up there? If Noah Juleson fits with Hughes, that to me, makes the best defense pairings. But at the same time, I, I don't love the idea of Noah Juleson being the opening night starter for Quinn Hughes. But I have to look at it as a real possibility, which is wild to think, I guess, like when you when you talk about a team that has playoff aspirations. And maybe Noah Juleson can figure it out, the former first-round pick. I know a lot of people actually kind of do like watching him play with Quinn Hughes. And I wouldn't be one of those people. But, like, you know, they at least have a little bit more options, like you talked about with the versatility. I don't know about Susie on the right side. Like, I think he's done it a tiny bit, but I believe when I looked back last year, it was like 6% of his shifts were as a right shot defenseman. So I'm not really even really penciling him in as a guy who can play the right side. So Ian Cole is that guy. He can play that spot. He's played with, you know, Victor Hedman at times over the past couple of seasons as well. So I, I guess Ian Cole would probably be my pick on opening night, but I'm not even like, I, I, just don't know like I think Quinn Hughes is going to look fine with whoever he plays with like like I mentioned it could be Noah Jolson could be Ian Cole I I wonder if Cole is the, the the kind of clubhouse favorite right now because I think that he could be it's just a little bit different he's been around the league for a while he knows what it's like to play with winning teams he knows how to fit into a role and at least I think I like that position when you're coming to play with Quinn Hughes if you can fit what Quinn Hughes's partner should look like you probably are going to have success with Quinn Hughes if you can keep up in the NHL. So, yeah, some versatility there for sure, but I think uh, more question marks than anything, too. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.